Welcome to the House of Jordans podcast, episode 16. My name is Chris. You can find me on Instagram at Chris underscore HOJ. You can find me on Twitter at House of Jordans. I'm here with Brian. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Joden Cards, J O E D I N Cards. And I'm Christina. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Christina's PC. K R I S T I N A S P C. So we're rolling out a new format for the House of Jordans podcast. We're going to be coming at you with at least one episode per week, maybe more. And there's going to be three types of episodes. And you never know what you're getting, so it's going to be a fun surprise when you tune in. It could be a 23-minute episode, could be a 45-minute episode, or it could be a 77-minute episode. just kind of depends upon the content that the particular day or the particular topics of the moment require. And I'll leave it to you, the audience, to figure out what those numbers mean if you don't already know right away. So, first topic on today's episode. Nat Turner made the biggest purchase in basketball card history. And it comes from the 2003-2004 exquisite set. TMZ broke the story to give you an idea of its import. In a deal brokered by Ken Golden, Nat acquired the 2003-04 exquisite all-NBA access press patches, Michael Jordan slash LeBron James, one-of-one dual logo man, that is a mouthful, for $900,000. According to TMZ, the $900,000 sales price blows the previous record out of the water which was a 1969-70 Topps Lou Alcindor card that went for just over $500,000 in 2016. TMZ goes on to report, we're told that this is the most expensive piece of LeBron and Jordan merchandise that's ever been sold. Nat's Instagram caption when he posted that he acquired the card, quote, I can't believe I'm posting this. After searching for literally 15 years, it's quite amazing in person. Yes, I wish it was autographed by both players, but it's still a legendary card from LeBron's rookie year, also featuring the best player ever in Jordan from the first exquisite set and with the first real introduction of the Logo Man concept, and it's a one-of-one. Keep on collecting. The cards you want will eventually turn up. But Nat wasn't done. In the same deal, he also acquired from the 0304 exquisite set the all nba access press patches michael jordan and kobe bryant one of one dual logo man there was only one other dual logo man in the set which is lebron and kobe but nat doesn't know where it is so he has two of the three he also acquired what was my favorite card in this haul the 2003-04 rainbow one of one parallel of the lebron base 2003-04 exquisite rc no autograph no memorabilia just good old-fashioned cardboard, and in the caption, Nat indicated that it, too, is his favorite card from the hall. And there also was a 2003-04 LeBron Exquisite RPA out of 99 BGS 7, and Nat said, I already own one of these in BGS 9.5, but this was the coolest patch I've seen. Imagine pulling this card back then. And he's not lying. Uh, the patch is gorgeous. Taking that in for a second, because... You know, when you put all those cards together, that's a million-dollar basketball card deal. The topic that I want to introduce is what motivates a collector who is at the forefront of the hobby, someone like Nat, uh, someone who is picking up the highest grade of the great 90s inserts of Michael Jordan, you know, years before any of us even came back to the hobby. It's a guy who's always kind of been ahead of the curve. And for him, he has a unique position in the hobby because he has to battle a perception 
that he has limitless money and that his collecting, you know, is enabled by the fact that he can just buy whatever he wants, which is not true. Um, nobody has truly limitless funds and anybody is making a serious, um, financial, you know, move when they spend over a million dollars on an item. And, but the question for someone like Nat is, you know, how can someone in his position earn his place, earn his respect in the hobby? And there's some ways that he does it. I mean, uh, aside from being incredibly accessible to any hobbyist who reaches out to him, he also provides a digital library that has beautiful examples of the most coveted cards ever made. All those 90s Jordan inserts, all these LeBron cards. He's working on sets, if he hasn't already completed them, of the PMGs. Uh, just a remarkable museum of cardboard. And then he also tracks down the most valuable and rare cards ever. And then he shares them with us. I mean, that's the biggest thing right there is what you said. He's the one that's finding him. And that right there, that, that requires a level of passion that you need to have to be a collector like him. This isn't this isn't just a hobby for him. It's a passion. You know, he has he has a lot of, you know, attachment to this hobby and it, you can see that within this collection. And I think on top of it, just the you know, he he could use his time doing a lot of different things. And he could probably use his time, you know, I don't think his his uh role in this is to make any money, but actually doing other things that would, you know, probably make him any more money than he would doing this. And he chooses, though, to spend his time doing this, which is, you know, just goes to show you the kind of, you know, passion that he actually has for it and for the cards. And I think, you know, showing him off and everything, too, is just, like, shows exactly what he is in this hobby and what he's about. What does it mean for the hobby when someone like Nat... Uh, buys cards of this magnitude and remember when he bought the mjpmg green you know it merited multiple podcasts from us yeah uh when we were in the very beginning of our show what does it mean to the hobby when someone like nad comes out sets yet again another record um for cards and um it's an extremely tasteful acquisition of cards that the three of us at this table love you know, and, and from one of the all-time great sets, so 304 Exquisite. I think it infuses enthusiasm and, like, a euphoria throughout the hobby. Yeah. Like, people are excited for him, but also excited for themselves and the grails that they want. Like, well, if Nat had to wait 15 years and drop a million dollars for his grail, one day, 15 years from the future... It might not be a million dollars, but I might actually obtain my own. And I think that it has a ripple effect as well where other cards, especially those similar or uh, the base cards of the parallels that Nat sometimes picks up, like the green, it sets off a trigger reaction where he bought the PMG green and even the base of the Michael Jordan precious metal was like just skyrocketed. And I mean, it's leveled out now, but it's still at a higher than previous standard. Well said. We do kind of live vicariously through his co- oh, through his sure. collecting, and then we also try to be our own. Nat 
in in the way that that we know how to do it it is inspirational that's a that's that's exactly right um it's 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 inspirational and then it sends a ripple effect through the hobby um i don't know how it will materialize exactly because pretty much everything in 0304 exquisite is already extremely expensive right whereas with the 1997-98 metal universe set it wasn't. Yeah, that, that's very true. But I think still, it's going to cause a you know an effect for those cards to keep going up more and be more highly desired. You know, congrats to Nat on yeah. another historic and uh, trend inspiration. Nat, a trend-setting acquisition. Yep. Next topic: the economist, the British economist John Maynard Keynes, had a book in 1936 called "The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money." And chapter 12 has a very interesting analogy that Keynes supplied for how to think about how the stock market works. And we're going to bring that into the context of sports cards here momentarily. But first, let's talk about what that analogy is. It's called the beauty contest. And here's how it goes. A newspaper creates a contest. And the newspaper asks contestants to choose the most attractive faces from 100 photographs. If I can just pause for a second there how uh, prescient this sort of is from the perspective of sports cards, which after all could be, you know, roughly summarized being photographs. And Keynes, almost 100 years ago now, 85, 84 years ago, uh, is is coming up with this sort of eerily, you know, uh, prescient analogy. But anyway, the newspaper asked the contestants to choose the most attractive faces from 100 photographs. Whoever picks the most popular faces... The most popular faces wins. Assume that all the contestants are rational. Kane says there's basically three approaches to this game. The naive strategy is you choose the six that you think are the most attractive. The sophisticated strategy is you choose the six that you think other people think are the most attractive. And the galaxy brain strategy is you choose the six that you think that others think that others are thinking are the most attractive. And here's a quote from that book. It is not a case of choosing those faces that to the best of one's judgment are really the prettiest, nor even those that average opinion genuinely thinks are the prettiest. We have reached the third degree where we devote our intelligence to anticipating what average opinion expects the average opinion to be. And there are some, I believe who practice the fourth fifth and higher degrees. Okay. So how does this apply to cards? Well, one way I think that's pretty obvious is anticipating what other people think is valuable, is important when you're navigating the sports card market. And the question then becomes, how can we predict what cards that others will think are valuable? Or if we want to take it to the third order or the fourth order or the fifth order, there's two different conceptions of valuable in sports cards. And this is where we start to get into the nuances and the important differences between sports card collecting and investing in the stock market. The first conception of value is short-term value. And that means cards that are cheap now, but will gain value quickly and can be liquidated easily. And basically, you know, some of the factors that it seems to me that people look at are number one, indicators of greatness, or what I say, goatness, indicators of a player's potential to be the greatest of all time. Number two, ball dominance. Is this a player who's constantly dominating the ball and a focal point of the game? Number three, youth. 
Uh, it's important the younger a player is and the more potential they show, those two things can work in tandem uh, to create the opportunity for an, uh, a rapid and short-term increase in value. Number four is team success. Um, there's substantial hobby value if you hold the cards of a player whose team is winning games. There's a certain, to borrow a word from Christina, euphoria that goes with that. And then number five, there if there's a sudden increase in public awareness or a legacy, you know, altering event that happens, maybe it's LeBron getting his fourth title, maybe it's a player rising from becoming the rookie of the year to an all-star or to a, an MVP candidate, you know, things like that. Then there's long-term value, which are cards that can be held for decades. And in that instance, some of the factors that you're going to want to look at are aesthetic appeal of the card, the rarity of the card, meaning it's print run, but also the scarcity of the card, meaning how many are available at any given time for sale. You're going to want to look at the prestige of the set that it comes from. And then last but certainly not least, the player and that player's legacy matters quite a bit so the hobby has these factors and there's more Um, i don't mean for that to be an exhaustive list but just a list of factors that i've sort of observed and the thing that sort of shapes those factors and that really isn't present in the stock market is that cards are acquired based on emotion and passion which means in other words that whereas Keynes assumes that there's always rational actors in the stock market who are just utility maximizing people collectors are not always rational and because of that i think and you look at the factors that that, that are often considered in people deciding what price they want to buy and sell cards at the key to anticipating those values is being able to trust your own collector intuition and so i think while Keynes has some important theoretical intuition for us, sports cards almost inverts his hierarchy. Meaning what Keynes called the naive strategy, which is it's naive if you just trust your own instinct to pick the six prettiest faces of the 100. In sports card collecting, if you've refined your taste, and if you have good taste, the way to get ahead of the curve might be to trust your judgment and your instinct and your taste and to essentially be someone who's sort of stepped outside of the game of trying to anticipate what everybody else is thinking and instead being a step ahead such that you're the person who's creating the trend that everybody else is going to eventually try to anticipate. That's one way to look at it. I also think there's a lot of value in taking Keynes's approach and being very cognizant of what other people think is going to be valuable. I, I think it does. I think you have to think of other people and what they're actually going to be buying, especially in this hobby. And that's not to say like that's just the only goal. I think you want to be able to collect what you want. But at the same time, I think it's beneficial to think about what other people want and what other people will want. Um, because it's not necessarily um, certain for what you know, what's happening today is going to be what's going to happen in the future. So you do want to predict those future events. And like, you could take it back to like, let's say when the Luca hollow stuff was happening, you know, or even like prism silvers and stuff like 
if you were smart there, when you know Prism Silvers are going up, you're buying Prism Parallels. You're buying all that stuff. You're buying the serial. You're buying all the stuff up that isn't isn't getting hyped yet as much. Then if you're smart about the hollows, you're buying all the other stuff around it. You're not buying the silver hollows. You're buying like the parallels, like the hyper pinks, the you know, um, any any kind of parallel to that, right? And those are the cars that you see the gains in after the fact because people then see, oh well, there's there's these other cards. They're hollows, there are other stuff too, and then they it, it kind of comes into that. So I think, you know, anticipating those kind of trends is what you want to do. So you find something that's a trend, you try to anticipate well, what could be something built upon that. Yeah, and so the Optic Hollow situation is a fantastic case study because there you have the Keynesian thinking in full effect because no doubt when people were acquiring those cards and the prices were just skyrocketing on those cards, part of the calculus that people used when they were making those acquisitions and when they were setting the price at which they would sell was, hey, other people are seeing this card as a potential substitute, a potential 1B to the 1A of the Prism Silver. Right. And if everybody's seen it this way, and then you take into the objective fact that there's a lower population on the card then that means this card could potentially become a very important card in the you know the canon of Luca rookie cards mm-hmm. but there the other part to the equation too is somebody or some group of people had to have the taste to recognize that this is a good looking card yep. it takes and it borrows in terms of its aesthetic appeal from tops chrome it has this sort of radiant depth to the refractor finish mm-hmm. that makes it inherently appealing. So somebody or some group of people had to have that taste to identify that card as something that would have a broad appeal. That's something that the Keynes theory can't supply. It can't tell you what's going to be a trendsetter. So a little uh, Keynesian food for thought there. Well, it applies, so right? It does. And borrowing some of the methodologies and the insights from the various academic disciplines uh, can be very helpful, especially in an industry like ours, which has never been, to my knowledge, the focus of an academic study, yet it's a data-rich environment, and it's full of a really interesting mix of sophisticated actors. Here, here first. After law school, Christopher is going to get his PhD in e- econ- e- uh, economics, and he will be studying the card market. I'll make my pitch right now. It's whatever university wants me. <laughs> I will bring a multidisciplinary approach to the topic. We'll look at political theory. We'll look at behavioral <laughs> psychology. We'll look at economics, and we'll use those analytical tools. You should also look at art history. Well, I am I am clueless. I mean, I'm I'm no expert in any of those fields I just mentioned. Not even close. But man, when it comes to art history, I'm clueless. Maybe you could be my uh, my TA or something like yeah. that. We just build our own school. Don't work. There we go. <laughs> Card school. House of Jordan's University. There you go. I like it. Next topic: the rise of the 1993-94 Michael Jordan scoring kings insert. We've talked about this insert before, uh, but never quite like this, and it's doing something very interesting and important in the hobby right now. And it's a leading indicator of the Michael Jordan market alongside cards like Jambalaya and a few other important iconic MJs. And so it's always important to keep an eye on it. But in case you forgot what this card looks like or you don't have yours handy right now, Christina, would you please provide the uh, the art house description? So the 9394 Flare Ultra Scoring Kings Michael Jordan 
is an iconic looking card to me. This card um, is one of my favorites, as I've said in previous podcasts, uh, because of the thunder and or not the thunder, but because of the lightning behind him that makes cool you that think had, like a thunder sound. Yeah, like, like every time you like pick it up, it's like, yeah, it's like <laughs> that was a horrible thunder. <laughs> but like because of the the strike, the lightning strike behind him, you just like feel the storm. Like as you look yeah. at this card, yeah. I think it has to do with the surface of it too. It has, yeah, like the refractor surface like makes it seem like it's like a cloud, like a thunderstorm. Yes. So we have the ninety three ninety four Flare Ultra in the top left corner, and Michael Jordan is ha- has just let go of a shot, and right at the tips of his fingers, his of his right hand, you see the ninety three ninety four Flare Ultra logo. Uh, and then you have the, you follow his, you, your eye follows his hand down his arm to his body, which is center to the card. He's in his Bulls 23 red uh, jersey, which is also an iconic jersey. It's what everyone pretty much buys. And then you go down to his feet where his name is at the bottom. And in the bottom right-hand corner is the Scoring Kings logo. And the background is this dark cloud, like Brian said. And it's like this purple and like dark blue, midnight blue, that bleeds into uh, the lightning, which around the lightning is a pink. And when you shine light onto it and you look at it in certain ways, you can pick up subtle tones of different colors, which just adds to the like movement of the, th- uh, the lightning. There had been inserts before this. Uh, one of the most famous is the 1992-93 beam team. And there had been plenty of others. Even the, um, the 86 inaugural FLIR basketball set had a sticker. Uh, which could be conceived of as an insert. But there never was an insert until now, until this one uh, in 93-94 Ultra, that combined abstract art, which is the photography and the usage of foil and uh, manufacturing technology together with a portrait of an athlete right. in, the, in the context of a, a sports card insert. And that makes this insert, in my opinion, sort of the first true in the modern sense of the word insert. Right. Insert. And I'm reminded of a quote from uh, Gene McLeod in Arena Design in which they said that one of their objectives when they were designing cards, and I don't believe they designed this one, uh, but their objectives in, in designing cards included portraying the athlete as a hero and you can sort of see just you know the imagery of a lightning bolt like i think Thor-ish. i was gonna say it's not a hero it's a god yeah and thor right. thank you is a god right. yeah. and hercules is so also a god we, zeus we is a god zeus is the god of lightning unlocked why lightning bolt imagery and symbols has <laughs> always been popular in cards. Electrifying. Yeah. There's like four or five Michael Jordan inserts that use it. There's. I mean, they just look the sickest. Like they just look so dope. High 
voltage? High voltage, like sort of implicitly. Um, but there's electrifying, there's um, spark plugs, which is a. Oh, top I was thinking spark insert. plugs. Yeah. yeah, and I. There's bl- even lightning and thunder. Lightning and thunder. There's and the there's uh, luminescence, right? Triumphant. Day. Indeed. The, uh, That's not normally thought of as a lightning bolt but card, but I think it does have the symbolism. Bolt, yeah, exactly. And there's even the base card. It's like a green electrifying base card. The green electrifying, that was one of the first cards I actually picked up. <laughs> exactly. Like a three, four dollar card. They just I don't know what it is now. Probably something like But it's that the card was just, it looks so dope. They inherently appeal to you. Yeah. They inherently. So the lightning bolt was just also what a perfect initial, you know, bringing in of this concept that doesn't have any natural overlap with sports and it's something more than just making it shiny yeah it's, it's conceptual and it's abstract and so to say it's aesthetically pleasing so it fits that criteria still well. one of the most i would say top five i would put this card jambalaya pmg red you know a handful of others as the I most mean, in appealing designs ever Definitely. I mean, you have people that are making, you know, custom cards of current players with this kind of design on it. And that just kind of goes to show what people think about this card. And I've seen t-shirts on eBay with the image of this card on it. So people are selling t-shirts. It's like, you know, it's crazy. People are just, you know, we need that t-shirt. I know. I would love to have that t-shirt. So I would also like to point out that this is a card that Christopher has given to me previously and then sold. And then purchased another one and told me this one's not mine. You always need a copy of this card on the PC. You need one. You do. And it it doesn't even need to be a high grade. These are difficult to grade as we're about to go into here. So here's some background info on the card. It was inserted into Series 1 Hobby Packs of 1993-94 Ultra. The odds of hitting the MJ were 1 in 360. And the way that those boxes were packed, that means you got one Michael Jordan scoring kings per 10 boxes the current value on ebay of a series one hobby box is 180 dollars which means it would cost you 1080 dollars if you wanted to play your odds in order to get a jordan the bgs pop report shows 991 total copies graded which is quite high for a michael jordan insert there are 97 bgs 95s which is roughly 10 percent of the pop there's 445 nines, which is 45% of the pop. And there's 298.5s, which is roughly 29% of the pop. PSA has 672 total graded. Uh, there are 95 PSA 10s, which is 14% of the pop. There's 158 PSA 9s, which is 24% of the pop. Only 27 PSA 8.5s because they don't like to do those half grades. 4% of the pop. And 277 PSA 8s, which is 41% of the pop. So, interestingly, BGS seems to be a little bit tougher to get a gem with. And we're going to look now at the BGS 9.5 sales history of this card. And it's one of the most interesting and dynamic sales histories of Michael Jordan cards. And it goes all the way back to 2005. Uh, In 2005, when this card in a BGS 9.5 was a pop 2 it sold for $960, which is high. Imagine $960 for a card in 2005. That's insane. Yeah. And since the listing indicated it was a pop two, I actually verified it uh, in Beckett's serial number registry. 
And then I decided to look and see what the pop was for some of these other earlier sales. And so my methodology is we walk through these prices here. I just pick one representative price from each year. 2006, $388, an enormous drop off, but the pop at that time had ballooned to 10. So probably people saw 960 bucks. It's only pop two. Let's start grading these became a pop 10 price dropped off substantially. And this is interesting. Something to keep in mind when you look at the price history of a card like this or any card, you look at the interaction between multiple variables. One variable is the population at any given time. Another variable is the availability of the card on the market at any given time. Another variable is what the last sale was, period. All of these variables are interacting with each other to set new market prices. 2007, when the card was still a pop 10, $606. So people felt like it may have been undervalued in 2006. They were willing to pay almost double what they paid, but still a far cry from $960 in 2005. In 2008, there were zero gem sales. It's important to keep in mind the economic background right now. I mean, now we're in the throes of the financial crisis um, when we're talking 2007, 2008. 2009, $553. At this time, it had become a pop 16. Wait, but you would think, though, in the financial crisis, someone would try and move a card. Yet, but what we're seeing is there were no not. one's selling it. Correct. People don't want to sell it if it's not going to get what they think it's worth, probably, right? Definitely. And Or there just weren't any buyers. That yeah. could be. We don't know if things were sitting on eBay. Although this list is restricted strictly to auction data. Uh, so that would indicate that there were no auctions run. Um, yeah, and it's only the that VGS 9.5. So yeah. it's like you know, people were buying the card probably in different formats. That's right. And the pop was 16. So right. uh, in 2010, zero nine five sales. 2011, $640. Pop was 27 In 2012, there was a massive increase in the number of auctions. There was only a few per year, maybe zero per year leading up to 2012. But in 2012, nine were auctioned off, $449. 2013, $455, but back down to four auctions that year. 2014, $405. There was only one auction the whole year. So you see this downward trend in price. People don't want to sell it anymore. $405, only one auction. 2015, $474, four auctions. 2016, $594, four auctions. 2017, $966, and only two auctions. That period from 2016 to 2017. I came back to the hobby in June of 2016 along with Christina. Many other people started coming back at that time as well. 2016 was sort of when the floodgates opened, so to speak, with a lot of people in our age bracket coming in. Uh, 2018, $899, five auctions. 2019, $1,000, a modest increase from the $900 valuation a year before, four auctions. And then in 2020 about a month ago, $1,856 for the BGS 9.5. And there's only been one auction so far this year. So to emphasize that, the card doubled in value essentially from October of 2019 to January 2020. And we see commensurate increases in value when we look at the PSA 10 trajectory, when we look at BGS 9, when we look at PSA 9. So the question always is, what does it mean for the hobby and for Jordan cards when we see a card like Scoring Kings, and Scoring Kings in particular, have a surge in value, particularly double in value 
over the course of three months something that it really has never done before. To me, the first thing it means, and this is sort of a good heuristic in general, when you're looking at the iconic Jordans like Jambalaya, like this one, it means there's probably new collectors entering the Michael Jordan marketplace yet again. I would agree with that assessment. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this card, obviously, previously, because it's so iconic, but it is very true that, you know, you have new investors coming in and they see an iconic card that's aesthetic, they want to. They want to pick it up. It's the first one you go for. Yeah, but what's really surprising to me with this too is just the the low pops. I mean, nine five is only there's ninety seven. You know, for ten there's ninety five. Like that's not a lot. And you compare that to like a like a Luca Silver or something like that. Any kind of currently person, at fifteen hundred you know. Luca Silver. Right. Pop. So it's fifteen hundred. So I, I mean, why why are people not buying this card for two thousand? I mean, there's only a hundred of them that you can buy. At two hundred, right? If you take into account for both, so. And obviously, there's lower grades, and you know I have lower grades. I have a BGS nine and uh, I think a PSA eight, and I just think though. But when you're talking about these PSA ten grades, like you can't. That is a. It's a very rare card. Here's how I would think of it. So we covered on this podcast previously LeBron's Laker rookie card with the Optic Hollow, and we use that as an explanatory device for why that card went up in value. Now people are looking at his 1920 Prism, seeing that as his Prism Laker rookie card since he actually had Laker rookie cards last year, but they weren't Prism. Well, this is the Michael Jordan insert rookie card. And the Michael Jordan insert market is the most important part of Michael Jordan card collecting. I mean, the mid to late 90s inserts and parallels, that is Michael Jordan card collecting. Next topic, and the final topic for this episode, Giannis prospecting. Let's first take a look at Giannis's season at a glance. Giannis is 25. He's in his seventh NBA season. He won MVP last year. Interesting to note, same age roughly as Patrick Mahomes, and like Mahomes, he won an MVP last year. Here's Giannis's counting stats. 30 points a game, 13.5 rebounds a game, 6 assists per game, and 31 minutes per game. Field goal percentage, 55. Three-point percentage has ticked down to 31. It was a little bit higher this year, but people were also leaving him wide open. I think this is a combination of them stopping, leaving him wide open, and also a regression to the mean. His free throw percentage is 61. Some of the quick advanced stats. His player efficiency rating is 32.2. That's a career high for him. Last year it was 30.9. 32.2, if that maintains, is the best player efficiency rating of all time. His player impact plus minus is the best in the league. 538's Raptor player metric has him as third best player in the league. And the Milwaukee Bucks record this year is 46-8, and which, as you probably know, is the best record in the league. Basketball references playoff probability tool, as of this recording, gives the Bucks a 53.7% chance of winning the finals. In other words, it's likelier than not, according to that predictive tool, that the Bucks will win the championship this year, which would be Giannis's first. And I think pretty much anybody you ask in the media is leaning towards voting for Giannis for MVP, although I think there are other players who have a case. Yes, uh, there are. Now let's turn to Giannis's Prism rookie card, 2013. The first year of Prism. The PSA pop. Total graded, 2,405. There's 1,931 PSA 10s. 80% of the PSA pop is gem. 
The BGS Pop, total graded 2139. The BGS 10 Black Label, there's 16 of those. BGS 10 Gold Label, there's 227 of those. 11% of the BGS Pop is a BGS 10 Gold Label. BGS 9.5, there's 1,539 of those, which is 72% of the Pop. So a little over 80%, closer to about 83 to 84% of the BGS Pop is gem or better. Here's the price trajectory for Giannis's 2013-14 Prism Base, and we're going to start this analysis at preseason of the last NBA season. So preseason 2018-19, $150 for a PSA 10 of Giannis Base. The price at the midseason All-Star break of last season, it was $250. The peak price of this card during the last season was during the playoffs, $650. And then, as we all know, the Raptors... Uh, after falling 2-0 to the Bucks, went on to overtake them and go on to the uh, championship coming out of the Eastern Conference. In the offseason, in between last year and this year, the card fell to about $450. In the preseason, it went up to $550. In November, it stayed right in that area. Towards the end of December, it got up to $700. By the time January came around, it was up to $850. And right now, this card is at $1,000. That means it is well in excess of its playoff peak last year, and it's at an all-time high. Giannis cards are pretty scarce. So just out of curiosity, I went to look and see if there's any Giannis National Treasures uh, recent sales from his rookie year. None in the last 90 days on eBay. Uh, Talking about the RPA. And when I looked, there were two... Uh, both raw and both 100k OBO. People uh, are holding him. People are holding him. Um, we covered on a previous episode somebody who liquidated his Giannis PC uh, before the season started through PWCC. And while you know the guy was into Giannis for pennies, and I congratulate him tremendously on the you know successful uh, prospecting of Giannis. Uh, that guy's already. Um, lost out or left a lot of money on the table yeah. by selling Giannis. I mean, I think the prize, the crown jewel of that PC that he liquidated was a gold prism Giannis 9.5. And so people are holding him, uh, holding him very tightly. And there is a lot of expectation value wound up in the Giannis market. And as a case study, you know, Mahomes and Giannis have there's reason to compare the two although the football collecting market and the basketball collecting market are two very different beasts but it is instructive to take a look at what basically the analog to the Giannis base prism is which is Mahomes base prism which incidentally is a silver all of the rookie cards in the 2017 football prism set the rookies were all only silvers no base so Come playoff time during the Texans game, which was on January 12th, the card was selling for between $1,200 and $1,425. Come a week later, the Titans game, January 19th, the Mahomes Prism Silver PSA 10 from 2017 was up to $1,500 to $1,700. Pre-Super Bowl, and I mean the days immediately preceding the Super Bowl, January 28th to January 30th, the card hit tailed off and was selling for $1,100 to $1,300. But the day of the Super Bowl and immediately following the Super Bowl, 
the card was selling again for $1,500 to $1,825. Interesting to note that even at that peak moment of Mahomes' triumph, it was basically selling for the same as it was immediately following the Titans game. Now, here's where things get very interesting. Well, or, after, you know, during the Texans game even, you know. Yes. It, it spiked there. Very true. Very true. And, and so he, the day after the Super Bowl, Mahomes' card dropped all the way down to 1250 to $1,400. And it wasn't done dropping. The Wednesday after the Super Bowl, it fell all the way to 1050 to $1,100. And then the Thursday after the Super Bowl, it started to recover again, and currently the card is in the $1,300 range. And one tool of explanation here is that football is extremely seasonal. Uh, People like to load up on a player and collect them uh, during the season, and then they sort of lose interest as baseball starts to pick up and basketball enters and begins to enter into the more interesting part of its season. But sure enough, when the preseason in football starts and people are deciding what cards they want to load up on and hold over the course of the year. Uh, you can be pretty confident that these Mahomes cards will go back up again. Yeah. Uh, but, but what's interesting is that even when you have a guy with a tremendous comeback story, like Mahomes had this year, you know, with very exciting playoff wins, a Super Bowl MVP, his first championship, you know, kind of following in the Brady footsteps of getting a Super Bowl in your second year, looking like having those indicators of goatness that we talked about a little bit earlier. Even with all those factors going, the card lost half of its value after he won the championship. I think what has to be part of the explanation is that there was a lot of expectation value built up into the prices of that card. Yeah, and I, I like that that phrase that you're using there is that expectation value because – it does seem that the card, people are anticipating that he's going to win, and then when he does win, everybody's already anticipated. It goes back to kind of the the theory we were just talking about in the sense of like people were already anticipating the fact that he was, he was going to win, so people were buying up the cards, but then people didn't anticipate the fact that he does win, then when he does win, what happens? Absolutely. When, we, when he wins, then people think, especially people who gravitate to this type of card, oh, it's time for me to sell. Exactly. And then everybody sells. And then everybody sells, and the supply goes up for who's selling, and then, you know, it's a simple supply and demand curve. But at the same time, how does this relate to Giannis? Well, we tied back into Keynes, and basketball is a different beast. But what seems to occur to me, I think has probably occurred to many other uh, sophisticated collectors, which is, well, wait a minute. Giannis cards preseason last year were 150 bucks. And then when it came playoff time, when the field narrowed from 30 teams to 16, and then from 16 to 8, and then from 8 to 4, conference finals, and all eyes were on those four teams, which was the Trailblazers, the Warriors, the Bucks, and the Raptors, Giannis suddenly had a microscopic focus on him. And when that happened, his playoff peak value went up to $650 from 150 preseason. Well, people look at preseason this year, and they say $550. And then people are looking and they're saying, well, the PSA 10 pop of Giannis is 1931 Luca Silver Prism is 1500 Those are roughly comparable. Luca Silver Prisms are selling currently for about $1,300. Giannis should be in the ballpark of that. Yeah. And then 
you start thinking, what is everybody else thinking? Everybody else is thinking Giannis is going to win the championship this year. He's going to win an MVP this year. He's going to solidify his legacy. He's going to take a next step in terms of, you know, showing what type of, you know, longevity, legacy, image, um, what, what level of iconic that he can reach as an athlete. And they're looking at all these factors and they're building an expectation value into the price of those cards such that we may be seeing a valuation on that card that already has sort of built in a lot of achievements that haven't happened yet but seem likely to happen. I mean, that's definitely true. Um, and you got to look at, you know, how the card went down after the playoffs in the off season, And then, you know, even though he didn't even win. So it's like, there's always that psychological factor there too of like, oh, well, next year maybe he'll win. You know, and then, but it's almost like what you're saying though, but if he does win, it's already expected. It's already built into the price. It's a weird, you know, psychological dynamic there. Well, so then you start thinking though, how much can get built in to his prices? Maybe by the time he's winning a championship this year or he's in the finals, supposing those things happen, people start building in his second championship, in his third championship. Yep. So th- it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily need to follow that his prices will regress um, when it comes to the common cards like the PSA 10 uh, base. It, it doesn't need to follow that those those will go down. People could just build in more expectations. Yep. Um, there's lots of different things, and we always see a rising rising tide lifts all boats in this hobby. So, you know, if Zion prisms are doing extremely well, and the, the logic of that tends to be among the hobby that well, that means Giannis' prices should be higher because yeah. he's got more notches in his belt. He's proven it. So there's lots of variables that go into this, and we're way too far out to predict it. And an interesting question that collectors and investor types will have to ask themselves as they look at this information is, well, Giannis's, you know, prison-based PSA 10 from his rookie year is $1,000 right now. Can it reach $1,500 by the playoffs? What if he goes into the championship and all the focus is on him? Could it reach $2,000? Should we start comparing it to LeBron's Chrome, uh, Topps Chrome rookie card, which is currently around $3,500 to $4,000? What type of you know cross-references, what type of comps are going to be made? You know, It can shift. It can change. Yeah. So that will be a thrilling and fun card to watch. And that... Brings us to the conclusion of episode 16. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the new format, and we will see you next time.